John chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knowest this man letters, never having learned? And all God's people said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up your words unto us this morning, that we might appreciate some simple truths therein, that thou art sovereign over all the affairs of men, and instrumental, exclusively so, in their regeneration. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Well, the title of this morning's um, message is Not of Blood, Not of Blood. Um, And so that's what I want us to appreciate this morning is that regeneration is not of blood, which is to say not through a familial relationship. Um, But before I start, there is something by word of textual criticism I want to mention here because I think it's very important. Look at verse 8. The other, uh, other Bibles remove one three-letter word from the text, and so I normally don't like to go over textual criticism, but this one's very important because it, absent this word, um, it changes everything. The word that they've removed is the word yet from verse 8. Go ye up unto this feast, I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. Other versions of the Bible have taken out that simple word yet. And uh, one of the things we should appreciate, which is important uh, for our understanding moving forward here, is that there are three feasts where all the males of Israel are required to present themselves before the Lord. This, they tell us, is the Feast of Tabernacles in verse 2. That is one of the required um, attendance feasts that the uh, Israelite males are required to go before the Lord. If Jesus says he's not going up to the feast, if you take out that word yet, then he has set himself up to be a sinner because he's not going to comply with the law. The law requires their attendance. So if you read the commentaries in the other Bibles, they try to make an excuse and they try to talk around it. But you have no other, you can think one of two things, that he's either being deceptive, I'm not going to go up, and then he goes up later, he lied, that's a sin, he's being deceptive, there's guile in him, that's a sin. Or he's in out-and-out rebellion unto the Mosaic law, which he is the author of. So you're only left with the conclusion that Jesus is a sinner. And if he's a sinner, you have no Savior. So I set that before us here so that when you're looking at other Bibles, that word will be missing. Um, He's required to go. 
He's going to go. He's simply setting up the conditions for him to go, which will be manifest as we, as we move through our study this morning. So um, the main point I want to make here is that, like I said, that um, regeneration is not of blood and that his brothers have to be drawn to him just like everybody else. So I'm going to tie a couple of three verses together. I'm going to tie John 1.13 with John 6.44 and then uh, what we see here in John chapter 7. So I'm going to read John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, um, which we spoke about some time ago when we were in the first chapter of John. In John chapter 1, verse 11 through 13, we read that he came unto his own. And that, of course, means national Israel, but it also means the people in his own family. I mean, we can, we can make this as personal as we'd like. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name. So to become a son of God, it's related to faith. You have to believe on his name. Verse 13, which were born, meaning born from above, born again, not of blood, not do a familial relationship, nor of the will of the flesh. Recall that the carnal mind is at enmity with God. There's nothing in our flesh that would desire the things of God, nor of the will of man. There's nothing in us that would desire the things of God, nor can I will and teach and um, impress upon you the necessity of salvation. It's not going to happen through the will of another man either, but of God. To become a son of God, it's of God himself. And uh, John chapter 3 ties into that also, where it says that, you know, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born from above. You must be born again. God must draw you to himself, and we'll talk about that later. So we can see here that it says quite clearly in John chapter 1, Verse 13, that um, people are born of God and they are not born to a blood relationship with each other. Now, respecting the relationship in the blood, who would be more qualified than Jesus' brothers to make um, an appeal to that relationship? Now, you recall all throughout the Gospels that the Jews are not infrequently um, saying, are bringing up their relationship with Abraham, um, to whom the promises were made. They frequently... um, appeal to that relationship to, to Abraham. But of a truth, the promise that was made to Abraham is not a promise that they understand. Um, for the promise that they're looking for and the promise that they make appeal to in general is one that is rooted in the flesh. They were looking for national prominence. How many times did the Jews say, even his disciples will ask the question, are you come to restore you know, Israel? Are you re- come to restore the kingdom? So they're looking for something um, temporal in nature and something that's of this world. They are looking for national prominence, and as a result of having national prominence, there's personal prominence associated in that too. When people run around and, and speak about how great the United States is, they're really lifting up themselves in their own heart through, through pride. They're saying, you know, I'm a member of this country, and this country has a great history of doing wonderful things in the world, and so they are lifting themselves up as they lift up their country as well. So the promise that they look at in the scriptures, these peoples are looking for one that involves the land grant and superiority or rule over other nations in an earthly political arena. Not the promise which spoke of a spiritual blessing that is rooted in God who would manifest himself in the flesh as a descendant of Abraham and who would die on the cross as the means of securing that spiritual blessing for those people and only those people who are of faith. 
For the ones of faith, the Bible tells us, are the children of Abraham. That's in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. The people of faith are the children of Abraham. So the promises that we read in the scripture that are made to the um, progeny of Abraham, it means those that are children of faith, not a physical relationship with him there. Now, when you consider the moral platform upon which Abraham's children of the flesh, those that come from both Ishmael and from Isaac, both lay claim to the land God conditionally gave to the descendants of Abraham. The Ishmaelites argue from a position of Abraham's firstborn son. So they argue, well, you made a promise of a land grant to Abraham. That promise belongs to us because Ishmael is the firstborn son. And they ignore the genealogy of the promise, which is through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the Jews ignore the conditional provisions in that promise, one that requires obedience to God which they agreed to three times in the book of Exodus, and it was ratified in blood. They agreed to what God said, that he would make them a special nation above all people if they obeyed him. And they agreed to obey him, but they did not agree, but they did not actually obey him. Nevertheless, when we read through the scriptures, we see that not one of the good promises of God did he ever fail to give unto them, even though they did not obey him. And as I've mentioned on the Tuesday morning Bible study, there's a backside to the promises too. Failure to obey means curses, and he fulfilled those promises to the nation as well. But people only want to cling to the um, positive side of a promise and not the conditional nature of it. Nevertheless, they were conditional uh, promises. Now, not to be left out of this um, fray, Political Christians, or I'll call them cultural Christians, look for the return of Christ with the expectation that he will set up his throne in a restored physical temple in the physical city of Jerusalem over in the Mideast from which Christ and his Christians will rule this world. Now, the reason I bring all of this up is that all of these three groups, the Ishmaelites, the Jews, and the political Christians are all making the same mistake. Their expectation and desire is a fleshy one. It's an earthly one. They're looking for political prominence amongst the peoples and nations of this earth. And what claim do they make to take hold of the land from which they will enjoy political superiority? Well, for the Jews and the Ishmaelites, it's their physical relationship to Abraham. For the political or cultural Christians, it is only one step removed from this. For them, it is because of their Christian heritage. They were born in a Christian nation, and they went to church a couple of Easter's or a couple of Christmases over the course of their life, or they think that because their parents are Christians that they surely must be Christians. I was in a church once where that was the uh, prevailing thought, that uh, everybody there thought their, Christian, their children were Christians because they were Christians. And I, at that time, it was a very young Christian, and I thought to myself, well, you've done the same thing the Jews are doing with respect to their relationship with Abraham. You've done the exact same thing. So... Again, what they fail to do is realize that these promises are spiritual promises and they're rooted in faith in terms of what God will accomplish on their behalf. Through, there is no blood relationship between, a, a, between Christians, between a person being uh, regenerated. So these people are all misunderstanding the promises of God. Now, again, who could make a more solid claim with respecting those promises in the flesh than Jesus' brothers? 
They could all say, as did the Jews, that Abraham is our father. And furthermore, they could all say that they were the sons of David through both their father Joseph and their mother Mary. In addition to that, as I just mentioned, Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, was also their mother. So they had the same mother as he in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. They were raised in the same house as Jesus. They ate at the same table with Jesus. They grew up with Jesus. They went to synagogue with Jesus. They attended the annual feast with Jesus. And yet we read in verse 5 of John chapter 7, For neither did his brethren believe in him. Surely they've seen all of the miracles that Jesus has done up to that point. Miracles that Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 36, miracles that bear witness or testimony of who he is that the Father sent him, meaning his heavenly Father. And yet they don't believe in him. They don't believe the testimonies of his works even though they tell him to go down to Jerusalem so that he can do more works. Um, given what we read here in John, it's actually worse than that. It's, it's just not that they don't believe in him, but we can see some resentment in the things that they say to him, and we appreciate that as a fulfillment of what our deacon read earlier in terms of Psalm 69, verse 8, where we read, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. So there's an alienation that has taken place within Mary and Joseph's family where Jesus is alienated and separated by his um, half-brothers. Now, um, there are many verses in scriptures that affirm that Jesus had brothers. And I know that the Catholic Church contends that Mary was ever the virgin and he never had any other siblings, but the Bible actually gives their names, James, Simon, Joseph, and Judas. He had other brethren. It's set before us here in, in chapter 7 of John. It's in the book of Acts. It's in a number of places here. Uh, it's also where we just read here in Psalm 69, verse 8, just in case you wanted to take the, um, as they do, you wanted to find the word brother in a general context, that all of those that have something in general in common and not have a common parentage. But it shares with us right here in Psalm 69, verse 8, that they, he's an alien unto his mother's children. What they have in common is they have the same mother. They are half-brothers with the individuals that are set before us here today. So with that in view, and this, uh, as I've mentioned about being raised up in the same household with them, um, I want to ask the question to everyone here, what do you think it would have been like growing up with Jesus as your brother? What do you think that would have been like? Before you answer this question, think about what life was like before you became a Christian. Did you like Christians? I can answer that unequivocally. I did not. I recall seeing one preaching on the street preaching one day. I was in fifth grade, and I thought to myself, I never want to be like that. <laughs> I, I ran from Christians. When I would go through a, a strip mall and see a Christian bookstore, I would actually go away from it. I would go around. Less, I don't know what I feared that somebody would draw me into it. And then I would be living in a, uh, a, a commune somewhere with a carnation pinned to me. Um, I had no appreciation or understanding what it was like, but I know that I did not want it. So that was what life was like for me before I became a Christian. I didn't want any part of it, and I did not like Christians. Now I ask the question, since you are a Christian, do you think people like you? How well do you get along with this world? 
And in verse 7 of John chapter 7, Jesus answers those questions for us. He's speaking to his brothers there. And he says, The world cannot hate you, but me it hates, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. The fact that the world cannot hate his brothers means that they are of the world. The world loves its own, which we already knew because in verse 5 it says that they don't believe on him. Psalm 69 says they are estranged from him as all non-believers are estranged from believers. We're in two different kingdoms. They're in the kingdom of darkness. We're in the kingdom of light. They're in the kingdom which is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. And we're in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before you were a Christian, you did not like the Christians. And as a Christian, non-Christians don't like you once they get to know you. Just give yourself time. I mean, this doesn't happen overnight, but if you think about it, if you became a Christian, let's say, 10 years ago, surely your circle of friends and influence is much smaller now than it was then. Eventually, you're not going to have any friends in this world. You'll have only Christian friends because you are a conviction to them. Just your presence is convicting and therefore irritating to them. Keep your identity in Christ hidden. Don't stand for anything that's righteous, just, and true, and you'll be, they'll be okay with you. But exercise your faith in Christ and watch the gap between you and the world, and hence your friends grow. So what would it be like to grow up with Jesus? As the son of righteousness, S-U-N, in Malachi 4.2, he is literally the golden boy. He's the golden boy. He's the son of righteousness. He was the perfect son. He lived and breathed every proverb on the positive side. Whatever he did, he did it with his might. Whatever he did, he did it as unto the Lord. Can you ever imagine Jesus saying anything that was not edifying? His knowledge of the Spirit and the intent of the law was perfect. And we see that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6. He knows the intent and the Spirit and the true meaning of the law. And I'm certain he taught that to his brethren. At age 12, we find him teaching in the temple and the Gospel of Luke. We know that Jesus never sinned. He was ever respectful of his parents, in particular of his heavenly father, because he was always about his father's will. There was never any rebellion in him. There was never any guile in him. I have no doubt that he put every single person first and ahead of himself. I imagine just being in his presence would be convicting. How much more so to grow up with him. Every day a conviction, not a condemnation, but a conviction, just being around him would be convicting because you would see what you are not and you would see what you cannot accomplish. You could see that you cannot love people as he's loving people. You cannot serve people like he is serving people. Um, you would be seeking, as we're going to find out here, self-aggrandizement and not subordinating yourself or humbling yourself before other people, things which he did um, as we see him throughout the Gospels here. Now, the Scripture says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That is a statement well suited to Christ himself, for who might live more godly than he who is God himself? And so he is going to suffer persecution in the world, which is not going to be limited to those outside of Galilee, nor outside of his own household, outside of his own family. 
Now, John chapter 7 opens with a statement that Jesus remained in Galilee because the Jews in Judea sought to kill him. Now, as you go through the Gospel of John, there's a distinction made between Jews and everybody else. And so in the context here, the Jews are the leadership that are down in um, Jerusalem. So it says when he would not walk in Jewry, that means he would not walk down in Judea um, because the Jews sought to kill him here, kill him there. And yet his brethren, they're most likely ignorant of that they were um, sought to kill him. And uh, let me share this with you, that people have been seeking to kill uh, Jesus since uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse uh, 15 or 16. The uh, rebellion of man has existed from the moment of the fall and onward. And if you track the history of the world as is revealed in the scriptures here, you will find that man has ever been at enmity, enmity with God and has been trying to kill him. So what's taking place down there in uh, Judea is not new and is something that has always been on the heart of men to kill Christ. Psalm chapter 2 speaks of that very thing. And so um, his brethren are ignorant probably that they're trying to kill him Uh, They tell him to go down to the feast, uh, telling Jesus that he should lift himself up ostensibly to glorify himself through his works because in John chapter 6, verse 66, we recall there it says that many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So there are people that are not following him that used to follow him because his teaching is difficult for them to hear. And so they're telling him, you know, go down there. This is the feast. It's going to be very crowded. Um, I'm going to colloquialize here. You can put on a great dog and pony show there, and you will undoubtedly draw many people to him. Now, one of the things we should appreciate here is that they are ignorant that their half-brother Jesus is God Almighty, and they are presuming to tell him what to do. I hope we can all identify with that, because I frequently in my prayers um, sometimes tell God what to do, but then after I think about it, it falls into a petition and to a request. But I just wanted to set that before us here, that they are telling him what to do. You need to go down there, and this is what you should do. And uh, if you do that, why then this will be the results of it. In uh, verses 2 through 5, it says, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart thence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples, thy disciples also, may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things... Show thyself unto the world. So this might sound like very practical advice from their perspective because there's going to be many people at the feast. And so if he'll show himself openly there, he can lift himself up. And thy disciples, and I see some, um, I see some discord in their voice here, that thy disciples may see the works that thou doest. We know they're not his disciples. Not only are they not mentioned as his disciples, but it's said in verse 5 here that they do not believe on him. And so I find this to be some thinly veiled uh, resentment of their brother Jesus here. So why might they want Jesus to go to the feast and openly perform his works? Um, Because they'd seen him heal people of their infirmities and they're concerned about other people that they would be healed also? Or perhaps they're simply zealous for the glory of Jesus the Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, the one by which all things were made. Well, given the nature of man and his blinding pride and zeal for his own glory, they most likely are seeking to glorify themselves through their familiar relationship with Jesus. Because if Jesus be lifted up and he's made a king, as it talks about in John chapter 5, verse uh, 15, recall there, I'm sorry, John chapter, I think it's John chapter 6. 
Yes, John chapter 6, verse 15. When Jesus, therefore, perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again to go into the mountains alone. So they're no doubt aware of the things that have taken place in terms of the people's response towards Christ. Now, if Jesus be lifted up as a king, what do you suppose that would do to them? Would not they be lifted up also and enjoy a royal, carnal life? Now, recall in the book of Mark where it talks about, and this is Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 37, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. We're off to a great start there. Verse 36, And he said unto them, What would ye that I would do for you? Remember, all things are naked and open under the eyes with whom we have to do. The Lord knows exactly what they want. He knows the hearts of every people. He knows what is in man. He just wants them to voice it. They said unto him, Grant us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. So they're coming to him with this desire that they would be lifted up themselves. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 21, um, apparently their request has not been answered, so their mother goes. Then came unto him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. Now, if you've read through the Old Testament, you can appreciate that somebody that has prominence in the kingdom, so does their family. They enjoy all sorts of privileges. And nothing has changed in the world. We see that today in in our corrupt political system. So this carnal posturing is common to men throughout all history. We see it today, and it's all over the scriptures. Um, And we see this on a national level, as I've already mentioned, respecting the conflict in the Middle East. Each group is trying to lift themselves up, and it's all rooted in what's in their own hearts. We see it in James and John here, the sons of Zebedee, and we see it in their mother as well by extension, because if James and John are sitting on the right hand of the, um, the Lord on high, then she'll be lifted up as well as part of that entrainment that goes with whenever anybody's um, lifted up. When anybody moves to the throne, well, then there's a, just an entire entrainment that goes with it. And we see it in Jesus' brothers too, I believe, I believe, on top of their veiled resentment of him. Now, is it any wonder that Satan tempted Jesus by taking him to the top of a mountain and showing him the glory of the kingdoms of this world? That's what we're seeing in all the hearts of all of these people here. Now, the reason I've said all this before us this morning is so that we might appreciate that. Jesus' brothers are no different than you and me. They have no advantage over any man in terms of regeneration and overcoming the sin that is in their hearts. They suffer the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, as we all do. In growing up with Jesus, they were ever in the presence of the Holy One, and it would be convicting to them respecting their sin, which, absent the Holy Ghost, would turn their hearts against their eldest brother instead of for him. Unless the Holy Ghost turns your hearts, we read in Romans chapter 2, that know ye not that it is the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. Absent God actually working on your heart and turning it towards himself, men won't turn. It's not going to happen to Jesus' brothers, and it won't happen to anybody unless the Holy Ghost works on their heart. And yet... They're, they're with him here, only up to a point. So something is drawing them to the presence of the Lord. The Lord has certainly manifested himself in their life. 
um, as he who is sovereign over the, all the affairs of men, including the timing of when things take place. And so God had determined that he would be born to Mary, and he's determined that James, Simon, Joseph, and Judas would be his brothers in the flesh, having the same mother. So something is working against their pride and their natural inclination to leave Christ, which we'll see in a little bit here how that works itself out. But we can infer that they're, that they're struggling with their pride here based on the undertones and the comments that they're making. Now, after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, all these, that would mean the disciples, continued with one accord, that would be in the upper room, in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Jesus' brothers are present, suggestive, that they now believe on him in Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 14. We know that James, the brother of Jesus, was quite prominent in the uh, New Testament church in Jerusalem, you know, throughout the book of Acts, and it is believed that his brother Jude wrote the, that letter of Jude in the, in the Bible, wrote the book of Jude. So I think we can appreciate that his brothers did become believers, but what, are, what I'm setting before us is it didn't happen by virtue of their familial relationship with Christ. Um, the fact that they might later be counted amongst believers is exclusively due the work of God. They could not, nor can any man of their own accord, overcome their pride and admit that all of their works of righteousness are as filthy rags. They could not, though undoubtedly taught by Christ their whole lives, apprehend the truths of Scripture that all men, including them, have come short of the glory of God. And as our narrative continues in John chapter 7 here, we can appreciate that they have a choice here. A kind of a choice is set before him there. Um, and that is, they can go down to the Feast of Tabernacles early, they can go down early, or they can continue to walk with Jesus and wait on his time for when it's time to go down to Jerusalem. So they can go down early, or they continue to walk with Jesus, who is the eternal dwelling place of God's elect, but they chose to leave their brother, who was God manifest in the flesh, for the outward temporal tabernacle and lift themselves up before their fellow sons of Abraham in terms of going down to, in compliance with the law. Either way, they're going down there to comply. The question is, should they remain with their brother Jesus or should they go down there? I think we can ask that question of people in the church today. Would you rather be with Christ personally or would you rather go to church on Sunday and show yourselves uh, amongst your um, fellow cultural Christians how self-righteous you are by attending church? Well, obviously, it's better to dwell with Christ. And we see that with Mary and Martha. The one sits at his feet, the other gets up and is busy about, being, uh, about serving. Our desire should ever to be with um, the Christ. Um, now, in verse 6 here, the Lord says to them, says, My time has not yet come but your time is always ready. What is he talking about here? Your time of self-aggrandizement is ever at hand because that's what your heart desires. Your heart desires do pride to lift yourself up. But for Christ, there is a specific time when he will be lifted up, and it's going to be through the cross. The way up for the Christian is actually down first and then up, and so it is for Christ himself. He will be lifted up by the Father, and it is through that process, it is through the process of the cross that people will be regenerated and be born of God through his work. Those that are his brethren, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Those that are brethren of flesh. 
So as we read in John 1.13, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. We see that that included his brothers as well. But as many as received them, received him to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So whereas we saw this morning in particular that Jesus and his half-brothers were of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were both from King David, and they were both from Mary, it did not result in their rebirth. It is all of God through the cross of Christ. And so what is man's dilemma here? We read in John chapter 6, verse 44, that no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Well, then need to cry out to God for help. Ask that God would draw you to Christ. Before I was a Christian, I remember praying a number of times that Christ would reveal himself to me as he has revealed himself to people that I did know to be Christians. So as the Lord was drawing me and as I was moving closer to it, I knew that I didn't understand what they understood. And so my cry was to the Lord to open up my eyes that I might see, open up my ears that I might hear, grant me faith that I might believe. So I was looking to him that he would accomplish all of the things necessary in my life that I might be one of his brothers. And so with that, I will say amen.